Hi, this is Mary H.K. Choi, your host for Hey Cool Job, a podcast about jobs recorded at Red Bull Arts in New York City. My next guest is Graham Brown, founder, executive director, and the principal at Forte Prep, a charter school for middle schoolers in Elmhurst, Queens. Hi, Graham. Hi, Mary. Hi, I'm so excited you're here. Yeah, me too. Okay, so um, it is so bizarre to me that you straight up started a school in New York City. Like, that is (laughs) very, very bananas to say out loud and super exciting. What was the first day of Forte Prep like, and when was it? It was August 23rd, 2017. And that first day, I did not sleep. I rode my bike to school. I live in Jackson Heights, so pretty close, and just stared in the hallway in the silence in the early dawn, pre-dawn, just trying to try to envision what the school is going to be like. Um, and all the staff came in time, and I was like, all right, good. That's a good sign. We're going to have a school. And I opened the door, the side door of the building, and there were, of the 90 fifth graders in our first year, about 85 of them had already arrived. They're standing in line. They're wearing the uniforms that I'd picked out. And they're with their parents who are all taking pictures of them in those uniforms. And I had this speech prepared to get them into the building and ready for the first day of orientation. And then I blacked out and it was 1 p.m. and they were leaving again. (laughs) (laughs) It was the most insane day and I think I'm still processing that. Right. You just have like tinnitus in your ears where it's just like, <laughs> yeah. and you're like, whoa. Did, had you picked out your outfit? Did you lay it out? Like first day of school outfit? Yeah. Uh, I had I had the suit. I knew what I was going to wear. My girlfriend bought me a tie. Our mascot is an elephant. And she got me this tie with all these elephants on it. And I was like, yes, this is this is it. But it was it was like first day of school for me, too. Yeah, you know? of course. I, was, I was laid out. Everything was ready to go. Um, Did you ever get any comments from parents being like, wait, how old are you? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, there were there are some, obviously, several, several many parents who are younger than I am. There are also parents who are older than I am. But few people look as young as I do and do the thing <laughs> that I do. So especially, you know, thinking about you know, principal, you're like, okay, Mr. Feeney, or like Right, some... or like Dumbledore-esque. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> Definitely not a 30-something black dude who can't grow full beard and is working <laughs> working on all of those pieces um, day by day, but you know, looks very young and uh, doesn't have the same kind of like visual um, imprint of a of a principal. Right, you um, don't look like that guy. No. Which, which definitely can work to your benefit. So, how does one even go about opening a charter school? And follow-up dumb question, probably, but what even is one? Sure. Um, first, charter schools in general are public schools. In New York, they are a part of the public school system, but they're independently governed by a board of directors that... Um, sort of own, runs the nonprofit entity, um, has to get approved by the state of New York. So um, we're approved by 
the state university systems, Charter Schools Institute here in New York, and they approved and granted the charter, which is a five-year contract to run and uh, lead a school, uh, to, they granted that charter to our board. Okay. And then they, in turn, hired me as the founding executive director, but in this case, I was the sort of founder of the entire organization, and I had I recruited the board to then. So it's an inside job. It is an inside (laughs) job. I hired the board to then select me as the founding executive director. Um, So, okay, that sounds incredibly ambitious. And it also sounds potentially like it would involve so much paperwork. Yes. So you opened in 2017. Like, how did, how long did it take to just do the day? Yeah. The darn thing. <laughs> also, I'm trying not to curse, just with like the, oh, the understanding you. that maybe your your people would be hearing this. Yes, okay. um, thank you very much. Uh, the school itself, as an idea, started in 2014 uh, while I was in graduate school, and I was thinking about what I could do to create more opportunities for students, first generation Americans, immigrants. Um, students of color to gain access to the types of opportunities that they deserve in New York City and New York State and more and more broadly across the, the U.S. in communities that really needed them. Um, and what I was sort of inspired to do was to start a school uh, that kind of created that academic foundation but also worked on creating good humans uh, who could be the next generation of community leaders and in their neighborhoods and and across the country. So that program that allowed me, or the program that allowed me to do that was this program called Building Excellent Schools. It's a nonprofit that trains committed, mission-driven people to found and lead high-performing charter schools across the U.S., um, it's a fellowship program. There are 12 fellows in my cohort. They're all scattered across the U.S. doing the same thing I was doing over the course of a year. So for us, it took a year to hire or to recruit a board of directors, to do community engagement, to get the neighborhood to know about it, to submit a charter application, which in our case was 485 pages Whoa. that I wrote in about three months, uh, which was... A, a dark, dark period of, sure. my, <laughs> of my life. Um, and then from there, getting approved and having to do all of the sort of state regulatory and city agency work of public hearings and talking to local Yikes. officials. And it, it felt in a lot of ways like I was running for office. Mm, it office, like, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So at the whole time in, in sort of, you know, with that as a corollary, the whole time there's a huge chance that this isn't going to happen. Yes. Okay. And there's no safety net. You know, if you don't get approved, it's sort of like... How can you afford making this your life? Like, did you have a, like, mm-hmm. a, a different job? Like, how did you, like, manage it? Yeah. So that, that fellowship program was the was the sort of lifeline. Okay. For, so for that, that was, like, period. underwriting it. Yeah. It, and it was, a full, it was a full-time... That was, like, my full-time work. This fellowship program, which in part was teaching me the nuts and bolts of actually submitting a successful charter application, which has... Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. It's a really really robust program. And the thing that they do first is they say, okay, you need to see see your school 
in action existing somewhere um, within this network or, you know, of other schools that you've seen so that you can then translate what you've seen into a plan for your own program. So it's almost like that one movie space camp where like the kids then accidentally go to space. <laughs> where it's like, you're like, I'm trained up. I'm doing this thing. Oh goodness. Like it's actually happening. You mm-hmm. know, that, that kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, that is like super admirable. And your school is free to attend. Is that normal in a charter school? Yes. Okay, so that's also rad and something I didn't know about. Like, clearly I don't have children because everything is just, like, revolutionary. I'm like, oh, my (laughs) God. But, like, that's rad. And also a lot of your kids qualify either for subsidized lunches or for free lunches. Correct. About 90%. How does that work? Uh, Well, how how do they qualify? No, I mean, I guess, like, how do you pay for all of this? So for each student who attends our school, we receive a per pupil tuition rate from the state of New York. Okay. Um, so that's sort of part A. That's the big part. For any students who have special needs um, or disabilities, we receive an additional uh, stipend, part federal money, part state and local money, um, f- to educate those children, whether they need additional supports, you know, speech language um, therapists, occupational therapists, those types of things. Uh, so the we also get additional funding for those. Um, we have a very small portion of our budget that is small but growing portion of our budget that is focused on fundraising, like personal fundraising, individual giving. We host events and races and um, mixers and, and those types of things to get people to learn about our school, and mostly just so that they are telling their friends about it, not so much for the the bottom line, mm-hmm. uh, but so that we are spreading the good word about Forte Prep kind of far and wide in, into different circles. Um, a mutual friend of ours, Rembert Brown, <laughs> shout out, yeah. um, has, has helped me kind of connect to other people. Because he's a media thing. beast. Yeah, yeah totally. He, isn't he? He is. Uh, um, um, yeah. So, so quick question, like what kind of middle school did you go to and how did that inform like not only the type of work that you're doing, but the actual founding of a middle school? Sure. Yeah, I, I went to a public middle school in New Jersey. It was a thousand kids and it was the only middle school in our town and it was at the time a fine place to go to school but the high school in our town was in the bottom 20 percent of all high schools in new jersey so if your parents had means or knew what uh so how to navigate the system whether it was you know finding a private school or going to catholic school or moving or something then they would do that at that end of middle school into high school uh, time period. So that's that's sort of hold that in your mind. But at the same time, that school was also holding really low expectations for what I could do and what I should be doing with my life. Right, because you're just like a widget that lo- will just come into the school and then probably the shrug emoji happens to you and then that's it. Yeah, and yeah. it's like as long as I wasn't as long as I wasn't breaking stuff or hurting people and I wasn't a super genius, then I was just kind of moving moving through the through the system. And I remember when I was in seventh grade, you know, my parents, uh, you know, were working class family. We, my mom worked at a performing arts 
school in Newark, and there was a fax advertisement, like a fax yeah. machine. <laughs> I recall those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Um, that was advertising the scholarship program that sends kids to uh, boarding schools and private high schools um, in the in the East Coast, and I happened to be the right age for it and the right sort of in the right um, geographic region of the greater Newark area. And my mom said, okay, I think this might be the thing that we should give it, uh, you know, try to m- maybe have this be the, the golden ticket out of, out of my town. And I applied and I took some tests and every time I went back, there were fewer and fewer kids. And um, after about six months, I was accepted into this program that then sent me to boarding school uh, for high school. And that totally changed your life. Completely. Okay, it, how? It, it was the trajectory shift that I didn't think was possible. I think I remember my first few days hearing about, A, what other kids wanted to do with their lives was, like, mind-blowing. How there, so? There was never, I mean, there was never a conversation anywhere about, if I go to college, I would do this. It was, when I go to college, I will do this because I've seen XYZ person do it or this institution or organization is validating or affirming my, my, my path to be, you know, quote unquote, the best and the brightest. And I was like, hmm, none of you are significantly smarter or different than anybody I grew up with, but you are in an environment that is giving you this mindset that you can do great things and you should. It's like positive, assumptive sort of thing. Right. It's like a given. Right. Yeah. And and some of that comes with, you know, the extreme privilege of wealthy, small, private institutions. But I think a lot of it was just the like the the pure mindset of the faculty and of the of the students that the, oh, yeah we can do this like we can we can do whatever we want. People keep telling us that we should be doing that and. Right before I left to go to St. Paul's, which was the high school I went to, um, my guidance counselor in my middle school said, okay, so what's your plan for high school? I told her I got into this program. She said, oh, boarding school. Well, those are just snooty white kids who don't know what's good for them. You're not going to fit in there. You'll be back here in a year. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind of, that was kind of the mindset. Um, at my school, in a nutshell, that you don't des- you don't deserve that, nor will you be able to make it there. And also, that like, why would you even want want that? Right. Yeah. Um. So, so with that mindset in mind, the types of the types of things that I tell my students now, and the types of environments and opportunities that I want them to be exposed to now, are more ambitious and affirming of their potential expansive um, yeah at at an earlier age than i than i received them and would hopefully help more of them think of themselves as those change makers sooner i have a question so have you since gone back to that guidance counselor shaking your fist and being like ha suck it look at this (laughs) no i have you you didn't like go hey hashtag round hashtag yale hashtag all of any of this (laughs) no i no i I, I haven't because I also I also get it in a sense that if it's a it's a self-fulfilling prophecy prophecy yeah. where if you tell people to have not super high expectations and then they don't, then you were right. Right. How 
do you think your life would have gone had you not gotten this like random surreptitious faxertisement? <laughs> I don't know. I my I think my worldview would have been much smaller. I don't think I would have gone much as far out into the universe. I wouldn't have been certainly wouldn't have been as comfortable with people who are different than me or from different backgrounds. Mm. And um, I would, I know that I would have wanted to stay close to things that were familiar um, in a way that I see now as super limiting to the types of experience I could, experiences I could have. You know, I had my first year, my roommate, was a Japanese American. He lived in upstate, uh, upstate New York, or outside of Westchester, I guess. Um, not upstate. Um, and he and I were very different on paper, but both loved Pokemon and both, <laughs> you know, had this. So just unrepentant nerds. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sick <laughs> nerds. Um, and I was like, wow, I see myself in you. Who knew? Right. And you know, getting to learn. Uh, basic Korean by helping doing like a tutor swap with my with my friend Steven. Um, he taught me Korean in exchange for me helping him with his writing and you know those those types of experiences, those like early bonds in when I was 14, 15 years old. Yeah, that'll like, really defy any sort of expectations yeah. and like totally. So yeah. why do you feel that middle school specifically is a crucial time to begin college prep? Mm. It it is it's it is for a couple reasons the for me i see from my seat as a principal as an executive director of the school and looking at other students the quote unquote competition for these college preparatory high schools and these colleges so many of those students are already running that race and and maybe not because of their own motivation but their parents and the the schools and institutions that they are a part of know that in order to get into Bronx science or the Dalton school or whatever it is, those like competitive um, programs in New York, um, they have to be doing all of these things from kindergarten, second grade, first grade, um, and building that academic and social foundation so they can actually be successful. For middle school, I see, I see this as the last best chance to get those our students and students in our neighborhood and our community on track um, to be academically strong enough um, and sort of socially capable enough to to hang and to gain access to those types of organizations and institutions. Because it's uh, a lot of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I think that for I think starting in high school is too late. Um, and when you know, for our for our incoming fifth graders, last year, twenty three percent of them were on grade level um, in English, and twenty five percent were on grade level in math. When they came into our school, mm. I was like, "Man, this is an uphill battle, but we have to start now." Um, and then I think the other part of that college prep is just like the mindset that there are there are things that you can do in your future that many of them will require at least at least some sort of advanced degree um, or post-secondary degree. But as long as you're thinking about your academic career 
as moving in that direction, if you decide to veer off or take other paths or not go to college, you will be able to make a real choice. And mm. like you can, you can sit at the end of high school and actually say, I won't go to college and pursue this other career, but I could if I wanted to. And not that, not the other way around where it's sort of like by default, you don't have what it takes to to choose your options, so you're you're stuck with some other option. Right, you're just not going to level up. Right. Yeah. So, what made you open a school specifically in Elmhurst? Like, I know that like Harry Belafonte and Eric B are from there, but yeah. like that's really the extent <laughs> of it. Like, what is the neighborhood like? Like, mm-hmm. you mentioned some of these statistics. Like, how do you just like? I guess yeah. Start with why why Elmhurst? Yeah. So the the school the school draws students from Elmhurst, Jackson Heights, Corona, Corona yeah. and East Elmhurst. And we're we're in East Elmhurst on 108th Street. So when I think about that neighborhood and that community, a lot of it, even though they're sort of narratives and the story of how those families got to um, New York and got to America, it's, it's that first generation American story, that um, recent immigrant story that I resonate with. You know, my my family's from the Caribbean, my mom's from Jamaica, my dad's from St. Vincent, and they met here and started family here. And I see, I see that hustle and that struggle in our families uh, when I get to meet them every day and the types of, the types of questions they have about navigating this middle school world, this high school world, like what can I do to get the best opportunities for my kids? It's the same exact questions that my parents were asking uh, their friends and people that they knew about. Um, but, you know, they, these the families that we work with are um, largely from Central and South America, uh, West Africa, um, and uh, South and Southeast Asia. Uh, so it's a it's a really interesting mix of of students and cultures. Um, but I I see the same narrative um, from when I grew up, and that was that was one of the big things that I wanted to be a part of improving. But that's not necessarily an easy job. Like I read on your website that 77% of East Elmhurst and Corona High School graduates aren't ready for college. And so you have this sort of like inertia or this like trajectory in place or like these, I don't know, these like rails. Mm -hmm. When you're tackling a statistic like that on like a day-to-day basis, how do you not get completely overwhelmed? Like how do you like keep keep? (laughs) I, for me, it's, part seeing the micro wins and seeing those mini light bulbs go off in classrooms every day or seeing teachers get stronger at delivering that instruction every day and being able to in small and big ways see that growth like i'm a i'm a growth person i want people to have a growth mindset on our team i want that mindset to be instilled in every student to see you know no matter where you start if you made progress today that's good and if you can make more progress tomorrow, that's even better. And that growth consistently day after day after day leads to, you know, those same students with 23 and 25 percent proficiency to have 46 and 62 percent proficiency in our in one year at our school. So I can I that sort of affirms and gives some validation to our model and that mindset. But um yeah, I think as a sort of a random 
story or maybe an illustration of of that what gives me that fire i had a couple of students who were getting into trouble on the bus you know that unsupervised time on their way home and in the beginning of the year reading their writing was impossible could not read understand what they were saying run on sentences no punctuation no capitalization mismatch of vocabulary Three months into school, there was a um, an incident. Both of them had to come in and write statements to me, um, written statements. And I'm looking and reading these statements. And while I was frustrated that there was an incident on the bus, I was like, hey, I can read this. This makes <laughs> sense. This has structure. And if they... God forbid, ever have to be in another situation where they have to write a statement about something they saw or something they were a part of or whatever, they'll be able to advocate for themselves in written form. And that's really powerful and something, a skill that they did not have at the beginning of the year. And so, so while the punk assery was consistent, <laughs> yes, <laughs> they can actually like explain what the, the nuance of the situation right, is. Right, right. Glows and grows, right? Right, I was right, like, right. Nice job there. However, stop. That's incredible. So, um, so here's the thing, like I, in a very informal poll amongst my friends with kids, um, some of them said that, oh, charter schools, I mean, I heard they're shady. They like juke test scores to get more money and all this stuff. Like Mm. how valid are these rumors? It varies. Okay. I think there is a tremendous amount of pressure on schools that have finite existence so the charters are five years you have to be renewed every five years and in order to maintain uh your uh, keep your doors open um you have to prove consistently that you are a worthwhile institution that your school is doing something that other schools are not and that you're able to either outperform your peers or your neighborhood or what have you um the thing that is really hard for me to hear um when I'm thinking about other other schools or how, when I hear those those criticisms or uh, that skepticism sort of foisted on us um, or any other peer schools is that there is nothing different about the students who are in our school now and the students that are on the wait list uh, for our school and our, you know, attend the next door school, the neighborhood school. Um, and their families are the same. Their sort of demographics are the same. And the only difference between them being in and not being in it was the lottery that we had to conduct because we had more applications and seats. And if those students at another school don't perform the same way that we do, then you could sort of run that randomized trial a million times and and see that it's the school setting and the structure and the academic program and our sort of approach to getting students to be bought in and joyful and excited about school um, and then allowing them the, or giving them the academic support to actually learn new skills and do new things. That is the difference maker between those schools. So it's almost as if you're being punished by 
improving test scores because like the optics from the outside could conceivably very much look like oh there's no way that this school would be such an outlier performance right yeah and 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 i get that i mean from the outside from an outsider's perspective if you're not spending time in the school in you know on on a regular basis then you it would be really hard for you to imagine how this school with these same kids could be so different if you don't spend any time and see what it looks like and how it's structured. Is it harder than these parents think to cook the books when it comes to test scores? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, I mean, the the amount, the amount of like Mission Impossible <laughs> type of spy work that would have to go into it to make sure that they're, you know, you had all the signatures for the chain of command and the third party graders are also in on it, who are reading and grading the open responses somewhere away from your school. And then, you know, the... So it would be a very intricate but boring heist. Yes, it would be <laughs> the, the worst heist movie uh, of all time. But yeah, I mean, I, and I also think that what, what, it, what I think is hard for, for folks to come to grips with is that there might be schools that can do something different um, in in a particular neighborhood with a different mindset or different model, different program. And, um, you know, change is hard. And especially when it doesn't come from the same sort of sources. Or protocols and paradigms. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, they're not expecting a school that's run by, you know, a by me, <laughs> to to be better than a school that they've known for their whole lives or and been yet in the neighborhood. Here we are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but does the focus on test scores as a metric of success for schools frustrate you? It does, because the tests are not a whole. It's not a complete measure of what we're doing, and um, it does help. It does help us sort of affirm or validate our progress from an external perspective, because everyone's taking them. It's one objective measure that every public school in the state takes. So if we are at a certain percentile relative to everyone else, then that does tell you something about Mm -hmm. what we're doing. But um, when you see, if you, you know, no one's evaluating the quality of our community meetings on Fridays and the school spirit that our, our kids have or how many families show up to, you know, the Hispanic Heritage Month potluck and dress their kids up in traditional outfits. And, you know, they don't that that part doesn't compute or doesn't show up in in any in any sort of uh, comparable metric. So that that part feels hard because we do spend so much time building a school culture and focusing on character development and instilling some core values in kids so that they can just be good people. Um, And we do that so that they can also be good students, but nobody cares about that part if the test scores aren't right. So it kind of pulls you in both directions. Um, But I'm, I'm proud to be able to say that we can do both, even if both aren't equally uh, held by by the public. Um, do you pay your teachers a livable wage to live in New York? And are are you yourself making a livable wage in New York? That uh, made you laugh. <laughs> yes. Um, I, by 
every account or measure that I know up until the very beginning of this year, I was the lowest paid, paid principal in Queens. Wow. Um, but that said, um, part of that decision was to, you know, take a lower salary so that funding in our, especially in our startup years and our first years are, could be reallocated to uh, more competitive teacher salaries and structures like uh, performance pay and other stipends for other work that teachers might be able to do. Um, I do believe that we um, are able to pay and provide a livable wage to um, to our team, and it's um, largely pegged to the New York City Department of Education teacher salary as like a starting point, um, and then we have some other incentives and and benefits and other um, package parts of the package that um, allow the the school to to feel like a place that you can work and and, and, grow, and grow and like yeah. yeah and there's like upward mobility there yeah. yeah and that's I mean that's a great thing because our school is a startup so we started with fifth grade now we have fifth and six next year we'll have five six seven and then five six seven eight so every year there's There'll be brand new teachers to our team who need to be coached and mentored. Um, there are leadership positions and tracks for master teachers to become department chairs and to uh, provide feedback to new teachers and, you know, in our operations team to, as that grows, when we're sort of managing more people and more, more paper, um, being able to see yourself and your role expand and, and morph in ways that I think will be really interesting. And if I were to watch a time-lapse GIF of you aging as your school grows exponentially, are you just going to be like withered? Like, I mean, cause this is like a hard job. Yeah. Um, well, I think it. I I think my gray hair is is starting to <laughs> exponentially like, no beard grow. but gray hair. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. I used to call them Bryant Gumbles. <laughs> like they were like distinguished and just hang out like in the in the corners. But now they're starting to spread back. Right. And, you know. So do you go home and play Fortnite with like a hundred kids every night? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. But it's one of those things that I need to know about. So. I so you will. But I, not yet. I yeah. watch I watch Fortnite videos so that I can say something about Fortnite or like do a dance, do the floss dance. Yeah, exactly. Like, of course, and they think they think it's cool. They also think I'm a hundred years old. Well, unlike of course, parents, so. I know because now you're the joke of the guy who dabs, and everyone's just like, "Oh my god!" But right. It's like with like you know the um the floss dance or the shoot or whatever. Yeah. Um, so actually, you know. On to something serious, but do you do safety drills for school shootings? And where do those guidelines come from as far as like a charter school? And like, how does that whole process make you feel? Yeah, so we we have a sort of drill protocol in place. A lot of that comes from um, New York State guidelines and expectations on soft lockdown drills, lockdowns. Um, there are... In terms of emergency preparedness, there are lots of resources available, uh, videos that the state and the, the city provide. Um, you know, when you're, it's it's a hard thing to want to create resources and train people about if you can't just say, like, let's look at this thing together that somebody else has has developed. Um, so for me, that that is really helpful. I think it it does create some tension whenever we talk about it because it's like 
it's like, of course, this is also our job too, right? And um, keeping our students safe is a is a major priority, but it's also really it's also really scary that that has to be something that we think about and obsess over. And you know, if you if you hear a loud noise down the hall, your mind might go in a, a million different directions when, you know, somebody might have just broken broken a glass or dropped a computer and it's actually not a big deal. What does that actually feel like when that's like kind of on your shoulders? Because you are the main, you're the big G's. Yeah. Um, it would feel paralyzing if there weren't so many other things to be thinking about mm. on a daily basis, you know, the sort of big picture, I want to make sure that every st- every child is safe in our school kind of goes in lots of different directions over the course of the day, whether it's like emotional safety or I need to have a check-in with this child who hasn't been in school for a while or like nearly needs uh, a pick me up or I need to talk to a mom um, or make a phone call to to check in on a uh, on a parent who's struggling or a staff member who's sick and then and then like the day just like flies mm-hmm. by and it's hard to also shoulder that on a daily basis um, today was a one of those kind of hard like emotional days um, at at school where just there are a lot of emotional needs and thinking about also having to think about like the physical safety and well-being of our of our students and, and that time can uh, can wear you down. So what kind of a sense do you have for, you know, when you're talking about like I have to check in with someone, I have to call someone or someone's not in school. Like, do you have that sense for like each child currently at your school? Yeah. That's I, nuts. It's it. Yes. It is nice. um, You're so, like, as the person sitting inside of my head, I can tell you and testify that, yeah. It is, it is bananas. Um, in our first year, and every year, we, in the summer, after we do the lottery in April, we start to visit families at home. So in the first year, we had 90 home visits. And I, you know, get on my bike or take a Uber and go visit um, visit a, a family at their home. They, you know, give me a drink and chips and I talked to the kid about their goals and their dreams and their values and that data that I collected about their families was so helpful in the first year even though it was like my my brain was saturated with yeah. like family information I could also be like you know why is Ryan not doing his homework oh right like he he's in this like triple bunk bed situation with his twin brother and his sister and there's no there was no table in the living room so where is he doing his homework he's like sitting trying to like on the corner of the bed trying to get his stuff done at night and that's why it's like a poor quality or that's why he's feeling stressed out about the amount of work he has to do because he doesn't have a good space to do it like I wouldn't have any context for that um, if I hadn't done uh, done that part of the work, which I think allowed fam- families to really trust us and to buy into the school, especially because we were brand new, and then uh, allowed me to have a deeper relationship with students earlier. Because I could say, when I came to your house and we talked about the rules of the school, you said that you were going to follow them. Do you remember that? Your mom 
gave me the like the delicious ice cream from the fruit. And she's like, yeah, oh, right, of course. Okay, fine. So it's like Professor Xavier and Cerebro. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but my thing is, it's like, but you're growing year after year. Like, you can't maintain this. Uh, no. You're like, I shall try. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. And in fact, you know, from year one to year two, I did, you know, in year one, I probably did 75 to 85% of all the visits. Um, and then in year two, I probably did like 25 to 30% of the visits because we already had a school that was open and we, there were so many operational needs in the summer to make sure that we could, you know, effectively grow from, from 90 students to 180. So I didn't get that deep of a deep of a connection um, with as many kids in um, over the summer but our staff also grew we had more capacity for other people to do that and I kind of by setting that example in the first year and modeling the vision for what those like family chats should be like and what information you should collect and what red flags you should uh, raise if you know you hear you know students arguing with their with their parents or, you know, uh, living situations that might not be super ideal. Like it was all this information that we were able to use to then support kids throughout the year. Um, but because we're growing and we'll keep growing, it does feel kind of sad to think that I'm not going to know everything about everything that's happening. And I'm trying to get used to that. And you know, it took me probably three or four weeks longer to learn everyone's name this year because I was like, I think you're Emily, but you're probably Allison, and I don't want to say anything, so I'm just going to say good morning and try to learn your name while you're walking away. Um, and So that's growth for you, too, though, that delegation and that yeah. trust and all of that. Yeah. Um, tell me, this is a fun question. So you're starting a curriculum, which is like, hello, that's like, that actually sounds like a really fun thing to do. Mm -hmm. What aspect or even class of like, of your school and curriculum are you most proud of where you're like, okay, our school is objectively rad. Mm. I think it would have to be our performing arts class. Okay. Uh, fifth grade arts. And now we have sixth grade theater. Uh, but the, so fifth grade is kind of like a it's a smorgasbord of all the different disciplines. You know, you're you're looking at you're looking at art, like visual art, um, and learning how to critique it, and learning some vocabulary about color and hue, and then you're also learning rhythm and basic theory, and learning a couple songs. And there was a point in the year after they had learned all of these different disciplines, they did artivism projects so art plus activism i love a portmanteau yes love yeah. a good portmanteau um and they the students first identified a cause that they cared about whether it was lgbt rights or anti-bullying or diversity or whatever it was and then devised an artistic expression of that cause and some of them were plays or songs that students wrote or murals that they painted or sculpture and it was mind-blowing to think that these were the same students who came in the beginning of the year so shy so terrified of our school now able to articulate at a profound level how they wanted to impact the world that they saw through art and i 
I still can't get over being able to walk through the classrooms, which were transformed into museums. So one room was the the Met, and the other one was the Guggenheim, and you know, we're walking through as museum guards and seeing the students interact with their classmates' work and asking really interesting questions and taking notes. And I was like, man. Kids are kind of dope, right? Kids are so dope. <laughs> they are so dope. And to be able to just get that window into their lives and into what they're thinking, and it it makes me really proud to to run a school that does that, that values that, and that you know, takes it takes it seriously enough to make it feel as rigorous as, you know, math or science or like any other class in the school. I mean, that's like such a substantial plus, like a palpable one. Yeah. Um, I thought for sure, because you're a big nerd, you were going to say your robotics program. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys doing with a robotics program? Yeah, well, we're, we're building up to a robotics program, okay. which is um, so, and it's funny because, you know, we've got these digital natives, right? They've never not known. Screen-agers. Yeah, agers. yeah totally. <laughs> um, and they've never not known the internet, but they also don't know how to type. Mm. And they, they know the, they know the internet and social media through their mobile devices so they you know we have chromebooks for every student at the school and just seeing them struggle to type struggle to use the computer to um you know perform searches or make a google slide presentation uh, we have to teach them all of those things first and like once they've established that foundation then we introduce you know visual based um programming. We use this program called Scratch and the website code.org to um, get students to solve problems using coding. And then once they have started to build a sort of fluency with those applications in seventh and eighth grade, that's when we're going to start getting into some some cooler uh, some cooler stuff with um, with more robust computer programming, some uh, robotics, and uh, maybe we'll make a rocket or something. We'll see. I mean, that's the other kind of really nice thing about the school is that, like, as they get older, their interests will just become really rad. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can really cook with grease in terms yeah. of how fun they'll get. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there are, a lot of, there are a lot of cool organizations in our neighborhood. You know, we're close to um, the New York Hall of Science, which is over by the Queens Museum and the, the Unisphere um, over in Flushing Meadows Park that just has this huge wealth of resources and after-school programs and STEM Fridays and, like, all these things that uh, you can do with 3D printers. And and we're just, we're making connections with those organizations to say, hey, child who the handwriting is terrible but loves computers until they die, like, go do this program um, this this weekend. It's got 3D printers and, and Legos, and I think you're going to love it. Um, so we, we're kind of also bridging the gap between what they do at school and their outside interests by facilitating those connections because i mean ultimately it's like kids are innately curious Mm -hmm. and they're cool and they're smart in different ways and it's just about like inundating them with as much information as possible for things that they might like right right totally so how is your work-life balance trash Confirmed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Affirmative like how do you not you know you're sitting here telling me like um, you know, home visits, like all this stuff. Like, how do you not get totally wrapped up in all these families' lives? It's really hard. I 
don't I don't know how to kind of achieve the goals of a an early stage school where, you know, in the beginning, it seems ridiculous now because we have a building, which we almost didn't have, which is a good story for another time maybe. But we, for a long time, had a flyer. And that was the whole school. Like I had a one-pager that I was handing out at soccer games and so you were street teaming your own school yeah okay yeah i had flyers i had i had an intern shout out to lenny um (laughs) we would just we would just go everywhere in northwest queens and just spread the word about the school one school dismissal or soccer game or um halloween parade at a time and for for the school to go from there to a physical space that people trust and, and trust us with their children and send them to us took so much building of trust and the amount of time I don't know how you I don't know how you would do it any other way that would also be effective because you know parents they were hungry for another option. There are no other charter schools in that neighborhood. Um, so it wasn't like they were, oh, I could just choose this one or just choose this brand new school that I don't know anything about. It was like, this is the choice. However, they are also still discerning parents who want the best for their children. Who, you know, a lot of the time, and I'm not trying to just like be reductive, it's like they don't. A lot of Queens is dope because, you know, anyone who's like ever eaten food in Queens is like, oh, my God, it's a paradise. But like we're talking about a lot of like disparate enclaves that like share space, like Mm -hmm. geography and like finite resources. But Mm -hmm. like, you know, you're brand new. You're saying a school and you're just supposed to like pawn your kid over to these like outsider (laughs) randoms. Like that's Mm -hmm. a really, really tall order. Yeah. Especially if you're talking about these neighborhoods with. You know, the Venn diagrams are like there's circle, 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 circle. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that is a lot. Yeah. And it and it is just I think that that hustle and that hard work in the beginning for me signaled to people that, hey, if he's gonna work this hard to get, you know, five people to sit at the Jackson Heights library and talk to him about the school, but like the materials are flawless and glossy and he's working like this school is going to really happen maybe he's going to work that hard for my kid and do you feel like you work for these children and families yeah oh yeah 100 percent. i don't i don't definitely don't work for myself i mean i i feel like the 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 work that i'm doing is for like if my my job is to work as hard as i can for these children and these families in this community so that they can do whatever they want with their lives to improve their outcomes and then to build a team that trusts each other and will work as hard as I work um, for them and giving them all the support that I need, that they need to be able to do that at a scale that it actually works for, um, you know, the work-life balance that I want other people to, to have. So you're just going to turn into pure energy. <laughs> <laughs> and like sea foam. <laughs> yeah, it's energy or dust. It's one of one of the two. Are, uh, I mean, just not to be greedy, and I know that you're needed at your school in a very vital sort of fulcrum <laughs> as part of it. But are you sure you don't want to run for office? I don't want to run for office. Okay, why? 
Because, I mean, talk about there being tons of places where we can use a guy like you, you know? Like, <laughs> Well, here's the, I mean, the thing is, when I have to expose myself to that part of the work where I have to sit at a public hearing, like, for our school, like I did in March 2017, and hear people say not nice things about me and not be able to respond and just say, like, sit and smile and say, well, okay. Thank you for that. I, I encourage you to come to the next public hearing, and I encourage you to stay after to talk to me. Like, I hate that. I am, I think, I like to be likable. I think I'm a likable person. Um, and to have enemies in, in this work, sort of ideological enemies, people who don't actually know me from, from anyone else, is really hard. And I think that was, that was a, part of the work at a, in an early stage when we were just, you know, flyers and street team that was, you know, could have in a, in another scenario, like really dissuaded me from, from keeping on because mm. I had never up until this point been so, so committed to something, but also so exposed um, at where people were, Forte Prep wasn't a school, Forte Prep was me. And people, if they were criticizing the school, they were criticizing me. Or if they had problems with charter schools, they had problems with me. And like that over time can wear on you. But now my work is laser focused inside this building and making all of the students that we, that whose families have entrusted us uh, with them. Like, my job is now to just do good work for them. And let the results speak for themselves and kind of like, I don't have to worry about the fray and the debates and and the, the broader discourse because my job is making sure this school doesn't suck. And if I can do that, then I'm then I'm then I'm happy with that. But like when I have to go out outside and talk to people about like, well, what do you think about you know Betsy DeVos and you know broader political stuff? I'm like, you know, I had there were two stomach viruses and three nosebleeds today. Like, what am I supposed to do about Bessie DeVos when I have to deal with, I have to deal with like very real, seemingly more important, very present uh, issues in front of me. Right. You can't just have like paralysis by analysis or like to be too zoomed out. Right, right, right. So that said, if I were to hand you the public school system in this country... You know, given what we know, having seen those like devastating Time magazine covers, and I asked you to change it for the better, what are three things that you would tackle just macro? Mm -hmm. I think the first thing would be making every school have a mission. And that those missions can be different. They can achieve certain aims, different aims, but uh, not a, just a mission that you write on a, you hand paint on the wall and people don't know what it is, but that it's a mission that is carried by the principals and leaders of those schools and passed down through the staff and the team members and then embodied by the students. And that work of creating a mission-driven organization is really hard. And I think ultimately when you're, school is aligned and the people in it are aligned 
to the same mission or a common goal, they start to make decisions through that lens more readily. And I think for a lot of schools, especially schools that have been around for a really long time and leadership has changed and um, they're just kind of repeating the same thing that happened last year, like the sort of hunger for a common mission and common vision across the team gets lost. And that's when I think uh, decisions about what's best for kids start to get muddied. Um, I think the second thing would be having a deep, deep emphasis on building students' critical thinking, like being able to just spend all of, their, all of your time getting students to ask good questions of themselves, of the work that they're doing, of the things that they're seeing in their world, so that, and building those sort of literacy tools to be able to communicate about them, advocate about them, and make some differences. And then the last thing would be the arts. And for me, it, it unlocked so many doors as I grew up. Um, but I'm seeing it now in students who, you know, you, you couldn't get them to stand up and sing in front of um, a group of, of their peers in September. But now, you know, even the middle of October, these are brand new students who are like, I love to perform. I want to be a part of an ensemble, or I'm really enjoying drawing or looking at um, looking at work from from the Renaissance or from Frida Kahlo or whatever it is. And being able to create a generation of young people who become um, who become adults who believe in the power of art to transform, um, I think could yield and reap very many benefits in the future. Um, so that's where I'd start. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So um, I have a question. What do you do for self-care? Like, it sounds like so much of your work is based on self-sacrifice. And, you know, I know that you're obviously a very hard worker and you're also terribly emo which makes for a very specific type of hard worker so what <laughs> and I, I i can probably tell that you're quite sensitive and you're like a feeling person so what do you do to take care of yourself mm. i i am trying to make more time for the people who are close to me um and doing things that make us happy um, it's hard right now to think about, to think about self-care as like a routine and more of a, like a time out from the, from all the things that are happening, uh, with the school and with, with my life. And I, in talking to other founders of schools and people who have done the same road, they say, you know, year two is brutal. Year three is better. Year four, like you're good and I'm like okay so I'm at the beginning of year two <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out all the all of the things that I can do to balance my uh balance my life but in the first year that was sort of non-existent um in this year I'm starting to be more deliberate about okay I need to I need to take some time away I need to delegate this task so that I can go see a movie or go running or just spend time with people doing doing fun stuff that has nothing to do with my job. Um, I really enjoy going to places 
where no one knows who I am. Um, I spent all of the last school year just being responsible for so much and so many people and having to make the exact right decision all the time that I, in the summer, I just, I went away to um, like out by Bear Mountain, New York and rented a room in an Airbnb and rode my bike in this idyllic bike path next to an old railroad every day. And that was, that was like all I needed, but I was also all I could do because I was so exhausted from having to make those decisions every day and having people recognize me and then need something from me and then me having to respond to that, those needs. Um, so I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get better at that now. Um, and I see it, I see some of the negative or the impacts, not necessarily negative, but just the, the impacts or consequences of it. My parents are uh, both sick right now. Oh. And, um, you know, my mom had breast cancer surgery right before or right during the first week of school this year. And for me to, A, tell my team that, like, I need to, I need to go. Like, I know it's the first week of school, and I know that things are wild, but, like, I have to be there for her. I have to take her to the hospital for this procedure. Um, and everyone was super supportive. But I was also able to do it in year two because I had a team of people. I was like, I trust you to run this school at least for a day while I'm gone and like I'll keep my phone on and have my email whatever so that I can stay plugged in and provide support if I need but I also believe that you will cradle this school and keep it safe and and warm until I'm until I return um and I was not able to do that last year um or at least I couldn't put myself in the in that mindset um, at that stage in the school year. Right. So my question to you, my final question is, if I'm listening to this and I'm like, whoa, this guy's school is amazing. What is like the most um, helpful way for me to, I guess, like contribute? The most helpful way is time. Uh, we have lots of volunteer activities. We have a Saturday Academy where students get tutored and it's great to have volunteers there, you know, brushing off their fifth grade and sixth grade math skills. And Okay, that's not me, but I'm, yeah. I'm still listening. Yeah, <laughs> um, reading and writing skills. I know that you're, you're good at those things. You can uh, look at students like working out their first paragraphs of like their own opinions and giving them advice and feedback on them. Oh, that sounds cute. Um, yeah, it's fun. It's really fun. Um, we we do career days. We um, which we had an incredible career day in May with Rembert was there, right? Rembert I saw was that, there. Yeah. Um, uh, Mike Boyd was there. Um, who else? Eric and Jeff Rosenthal were there. Just the best people. Yeah, it yeah. was a solid, solid crew and. Um, and in and in fact, um, quick story about Eric Jeff. They filmed. They they talked to kids about podcast or um, having a podcast, being YouTubers, and like. 
doing all these things and the kids were like dying. They were like, I can't believe there's a real live internet person in front of right. me. It's the real, it's the real. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And this one student in particular who uh, like wrote them this beautifully long um, thank you note and is obsessed with them. This same student is now still, he's, he's struggling, doing his homework. He's just not engaged. He's not like, he lost his buy-in. So I, you know, I sent Eric and Jeff an email on Friday and I was like, hey, you remember Mike? He was in the front. He was obsessed with you. He probably wrote you a long letter. I need, he's not, I, I'm, I'm running out of ideas on like how to motivate him, how to get him on track. Could you write him something or film a like a minute video saying like, hey, Mike, get your head in the game, please. Like your future depends on it. Love, it's the real. And they're like, sure, we can do it in an hour. And they sent me a video and I showed it to him. And to see his eyes just like completely light up, like, whoa, they said my name. And they're talking to me about this thing that happened today. Wow. Weird, yeah, like, totally. so weird. And also now I don't want to disappoint them. So now I'm going to start doing my homework. And he has been. And it's it's... Like, that amount of time had this ripple effect. Um, no, that totally makes sense, though. Like, because yeah. who amongst us doesn't recall the one kind person who went out of their way when we were, like, impressionable little putty clay selves? And they were, like, people we admired. And right. it really, like, it, it is, it becomes an inflection point. Yeah. And and I think that, and I think the cool thing about about that and a, and sort of, in full circle about the expectations and like what you think you can do or should do in the world is that I'm sure there are very many interesting people who listen to this podcast, many of whom probably had no idea what they were going to do with their lives when they were in fifth and sixth grade. If you could put your, your current self in front of your former self and say like, you can do this one day, like, might you be more interested in pursuing that career or seeing uh, a different view of the future that might be slightly more expansive? Like that's what we're trying to do at the end of the day so that students do feel like they can really do anything. Um, so getting that time with interesting people who want to give back to communities is, is what, we, what we ask and what we, what we need. And hi, we're in New York. It's like there's the best people here. Right? I mean, totally. seriously. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, before you go, what's your website so people can learn more? Yes, forteprep.org. F-O-R-T-E-P-R-E-P.org. And we're <laughs> on Twitter at Forte Prep Queens, and on Instagram at Forte Prep. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This was super fun. Thank you, Mary. This Yay. was wonderful. I'm in love with my life. Take Your Job is recorded at Red Bull Arts New York. Special thanks to Hassan Insane, Joseph Hazen, Max Wolf, and the song you hear is I'm in Love with My Life by Phases.